I can't control God. It's a risk you take, you know? I can't control the wind yeah. or God. So then it's, five seconds then I will call out the tour director, but I'm just saying that if the wind blows, there's nothing I can do about that. I can't control God. Talk to him. Hello everybody, welcome back to the Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. I'm James. Episode 296 finds us just about round three of the Miami Open. The last time we came to you, we had gotten through the first few rounds of Indian Wells. So we're kind of bridging the gap between the end of that tournament and the start of this one. Yeah, this sunshine double, it feels like a sunshine quarter. This stretch in March is just such a manspread. <laughs> across the tennis calendar. I'm just, after all these years, I'm just confused. Like, I can never remember where we are at either tournament because early rounds, like, aren't supposed to be happening late week, you know, the previous week. It's very confusing. We also, uh, we went away for a few days, which interrupted the final weekend of Indian Wells for us. So it's a, a very confusing time on the tennis calendar for me. Why are first round matches happening on the Friday of the first week of either of these events? Because the draw is too big. <laughs> uh, that's it, right? I mean, I know that it's likely that we're going to get more joint events spread out across two weeks or a week and a half in the future. That seems to be the way tennis is evolving. Yeah, because... The people who run tennis know that the money is in the 1,000s. Uh, at the tour level, revenue is coming from the 1,000 events. So even if that squeezes out smaller tournaments like 250s, I don't think they're that fussed about it. Where we are right now, Coco Goff is on court against Potapova, coming back from 5-2 down in the first set to now lead 7-6-4-3 in the second set. Bertini is down a set. He's in a second set tiebreak with Mackie McDonald having won the first set. Who else is on court here? Taylor Townsend is on court in doubles, playing with Leila Fernandez against Mladenovic and Babos. And Sloane Stevens is on court in doubles. Felix is in a first set tiebreak, and Victoria Azarenka is on court against Magdalenette. I will say one of the, the best parts about these huge events, these Masters 1000s, even at the Canada Open, Cincinnati level that are just one week, you get some really exciting doubles pairings. Yes, yes. Before we go back and look at what happened in Indian Wells and how it played out, just another note on this tennis paradise stuff. <laughs> uh, you know, I feel like me... we talked about this on the last episode too, right? I th We may have made a joke about it, but when I really got down to thinking about it, I realized... Not only was every official account using the hashtag, which is understandable, that's their branding, journalists seemed, um, shall we say, seemed compelled or rather... Coerced? Well, no, I won't go that far because I don't know. Mm. Seemed encouraged to be using it because why... I like, I'm looking at tweets from reporters who are not representatives of the tournament. They're not there to advertise. Why are they tweeting about Indian Wells exclusively with the hashtag Tennis Paradise? I'm talking about every single tweet. Like This is literally it's... a desert. <laughs> it's a desert in California, in the United States, in 2023. To me, I'm not even looking to comment on whether or not it is Tennis Paradise. That's not interesting to me. I've never been there. Uh, what I'm commenting on is why are reporters using this hashtag? And it's not just like one or two tweets, right? It seems like, uh, I don't know this, but if you want to be in the press corps here, you are strongly encouraged to use that to hashtag all of your tweets. Mm -hmm. Why not just hashtag it with the BN Paribas open or hashtag Indian Wells or whatever? Right. So, on the WTA side... Oh, you're done with that? Yeah, I'm done it's with that. Giving, it's giving Shanghai Rolex Masters. Remember that? But at least there was a little humor to that. <laughs> Elena Rybakina, 
flipped the script on Arena Sabalenka in the final of Indian Wells. The two met in the Australian Open final with Sabalenka coming back from a set down to win in three. This time, Rybakina wins in straight sets. Like at the Australian Open, Rybakina was coming off a win over world number one, Iga Shiontek. And during this match, Elena was clearly trying to get better on return, being more competitive in every return game, because Arena can blow you off court. She maybe she wasn't having the best day. She was pressured on serve, obviously, but the serving yips or the nerves seemed to creep in a little bit. She hit 10 double faults in this match, uh, a crucial one when she held set point in the first set tiebreak. And credit to her because after the match, she gave a pretty realistic summary of like, yeah, sometimes it's just not your day. Sometimes the serve is not going to work the way you like it, but it's not going to turn into this massive problem for me, like it was last year. Previously, Rybakina was 0-4 against Sabalenko heading into this match, and she credited her focus on protecting her second serve, like you said, and also putting pressure on Arena's second serve. Those two things helping her get the win this yeah, time. yeah. The headline from Tennis.com really made me chuckle. It's, Elena Rybakina speaks softly, but her racket is speaking louder by the week. And all I could think of was Muguruza saying, the racket will talk. Say what now? Don't you remember that? <laughs> I do. I was just kind of <laughs> taken aback by it. I didn't expect you to, to oh. give us Mugu speak. Though. Yeah, it's such a classic meme because the amusement and playfulness in her voice followed by such a historically poor run of tennis from Mugurutha is sad, tragic, ironic. It's just gorgeous. Wow. Uh, I wasn't too fond of the the harping on the softness of her speaking in this. Because I feel like it's becoming oh, a tired mm-hmm. trope with how we talk about Rybakina. How she doesn't smile on court, she's not effusive... She doesn't give emotions. She's too stoic. Now she's speaking too softly. <laughs> and it's also um, a play on, I forgot which president this was about, or who said it, speak softly and carry a big stick. Oh, that this is something we learned in American history. That's your business. That's not mine. <laughs> Does the WTA have a big three? For a good couple of years now, we've had one or two, maybe two players at any given time, uh, quote-unquote, dominating or doing the best, and then a whole host of rotating characters who can pop up every week. We talked and droned on about the the parity, the depth on the WTA Tour for so long, with the expectation that eventually a few would start to just rise above the others, right? And it's mm-hmm. if if that's the way that you've been looking at it, now is the now is the fruition of that perhaps perhaps this is so early to me uh and we should be wary of making any predictions about wta because even when someone seemed to have rise to the top as a a rival it has been short-lived now i think there's there is something to this you know iga is the still the clear number one despite having probably some disappointing results for her this year, not winning Australia, not winning Indian Wells, dealing with some injuries, uh, losing to Krejcikova again, but still not a not a horrible stretch of play. Right, but not too long ago, she had almost twice as many points as the world number one compared to whoever was at number two. And yes. now, if Arena Sabalenka wins in Miami, she will be just shy of 1,300 or 1,200 points behind Sviantec. Mm-hmm. And part of that is Iga didn't defend her full points from Indian Wells, making the semifinals. And she had to withdraw from Miami and subsequent to that, the Billie Jean King Cup to focus on rehabilitation, rehabbing this injury situation that she's got going on. Yeah. The thing is, Iga is defending a shitload of points over the next few months. And it is probably wise to pull out of Miami. She said this is a rib injury. Rafa had a rib injury at Indian Wells last year. 
I'm just sitting here kind of stunned that you went with shitload when you had so many, so many other options. What's wrong with that? It's just a little bit out oh, of character uh, for the, you. How about the cliche, a raft of points? I've never that heard better? that. Really? A raft? A ra- I hear that, or I read that written all the time. Anyway, she's defending a lot of points. So it's going to reduce the gap a little bit. I immediately bristle at the big three thing because the big three is this ATP construction. I don't I don't need it. I don't think we need it. Of course, WTA has had something like a big three before for a, a very brief period in history. Hell, uh, back in like 2002, they had a big 10. Right. <laughs> no, but for a very brief period... It was Serena, Maria, and Vika. I know a lot of folks on here are nostalgic about that era. I'm actually not particularly nostalgic about that era. Just because Serena, I feel, in 2011-2012 wasn't at full strength yet. I prefer Serena dominating. but And I didn't much like the other two. In the sense... Oh. Well. Well, you... <laughs> I'm saying, I I just want to push back it saying this is the new big three. Because what if there's a big four? You know, what if uh, Ons comes back? She was in two major finals last year. Pagulo, number three. Mm-hmm. Coco Goff was a, the runner-up at Roland Garros. There's people like Ostapenko. Krejcikova. Zhang Qin went. Like, there's so many people who could assert themselves still. Like, this isn't a done deal. But I do think there has been a bit of a a shift in WTA at the top over the past few months. Right. I don't think it's the big three. I think it's a current big three. Mm. <laughs> in the semifinals, Rybakina beat Sviantec 6-2-6-2. That was as rudimentary as Iga would have hated it to be. Yes. And then also, by a similar scoreline, Sabalenka beat Sakari 6-2-6-3 in the other semifinal. Sakari was the runner-up in Indian Wells last year, losing to Iga during that that stretch that started uh, in the winter. So she did well to defend most of those points from Indian Wells. She lost early in Miami to Andrescu in a three-set match. She didn't perform great in Miami last year anyway, but her ranking is hovering around nine. So she has taken a bit of a hit as the top ten has, uh, at least the top five has started to become a little bit clearer. I had a chuckle at you last night because you, who is the biggest proponent of big babe tennis that I know, was trembling in the kitchen at the at the possibility, the prospect of Onsjabur being passed by, by these. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I love big babe, te- big babe tennis, as you know, but that's not all that I love. I love Ons' game, and I think there's a place for her at the top, and I want to see her win a major. I want to see her win Roland Garros or Wimbledon. I love the way she plays. She's creative. She's exciting. And I think she brings a lot of fans to the sport. Like, we, we've talked about this, what, Ministry of Joy thing, but she does radiate a lot of passion and enjoyment around tennis, aside from her game, which is gorgeous. I do not disagree with anything you just mm-hmm. said. You just thought it was out of care. Like, I should relish having three big hitters at the top. I'm just saying this which is... Which I do. This is what you wrought. <laughs> <laughs> and this may shift, but of, of these three, who have been deemed by some the new big three, Rybakina is definitely my favorite. Okay. That's a big announcement on the show. Yeah. I, you just told people you didn't like Vika. <laughs> You just tell people that well, it's, no, especially that Iga is not your fave. <laughs> I don't have any ill will toward any of them. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying of those three, Rybakina is my favorite by a lot. Well, this has been uh, one of the tenets of the body serve over the years. Letting or biases lay bare for all yeah, to hear. Yeah. Are you a fan of Carlitos? He's okay. The champion in Indian Wells, we now know that he, according to some, is the owner, the holder of the Sunshine Swing double across two seasons. That's the thing now. What? What does that mean? Because he won Miami last year and now he owns Indian Wells. So for a week. Oh, I see. For two weeks. Is that a thing? Apparently. You can be... So there's a difference between the 
calendar year sunshine double and the career <laughs> sunshine double, please. <laughs> I'm not saying it was a widespread All thing. Right. I'm saying I saw it in a couple spots. So can you win the channel slam if you win Rolling Girls in like 2000 and then Wimbledon 20 years later? Let's not get carried away. Okay. <laughs> this was by any metric just, it was just a comprehensive week for Carlos. Much like Rybakina. For Rybakina, she beat Kenin, Badosa, Gracheva, Muhova, Sviantek, and Sabalenko. For Carlos, he beat Kokinakis, Greekspor, Draper, Felix, Sinner, and then Medvedev easily in the final. Carlos did not lose a set all week. With the win, Alcaraz returns to number one. It may be a brief stay because I believe he'd have to at least make the final, if not win again in Miami to continue his number one reign over Djokovic. Mm -hmm. I read on the ATP website that Carlos is the youngest ATP player ever to regain the number one spot. As you might imagine, the hype surrounding Carlos is once again at a fever pitch. After winning his eighth ATP title before the age of 20, I'm not going to get into the comparisons to Nadal and then for folks to say, well, Nadal won this many tournaments before the age of 20, did all this, he'd won slams, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Carlos's achievement, especially given what we've seen in the last 10 years with all these disappearing generations of would-be challengers, it's impressive. He's now won his third ATP 1000 title following up the Miami win last year and then in Madrid, now Indian Wells. The expectations are so high that people were calling this a Masters 1000 drought. His previous Masters titles was at Madrid, and he didn't win one after that. I was like, okay, that was not that long ago. <laughs> that was less than a year ago. There was a U.S. Open. <laughs> right. <laughs> there were other titles, including a major. He's establishing these uh, what could be interesting rivalries against Sinner. Well, that one is already pretty exciting against Felix, who Felix previously kind of had his number. Uh, on the slow court, it the result never really felt in doubt, although it was a first, uh, competitive first set. In the semifinals, Alcaraz beat Sinner 7-6-6-3, and then Medvedev took out Tiafo 7-5-7-6. We're kind of seeing Francis become a consistent player on the ATP now. Not player as in athlete, but in the talk. He's in the right. talk a lot more. Uh, since he made that semifinal at the U.S. Open last year. And this is his first semifinal at a Masters 1000 event. In beating Medvedev, Carlos ends Daniil's 19-match win streak that saw him win three titles, his previous three events, and then make this final again at Indian Wells. Complaining the whole time about the court. From jump. Complaining and then uh, kind of backtracking during press and then complaining again and then <laughs> just a lot of uh philosophizing throughout the tournament about his own problems with the court and how he himself should deal with it medvedev beats Zverev. did we talk about that last week I, I can't remember when that happened medvedev seemed to have injured his ankle in that match he fell down kind of waved off Zverev as he came over to see if he was okay or help him up uh it was a lot of emotions, but he got through that match and didn't seem to be too hampered going forward. So on the men's side heading into Miami, this is probably the biggest story. Will Alcaraz maintain his spot at number one or will Djokovic return? Yeah. If uh, when Clay starts, both Novak and Rafa are back, then that sets up a very interesting play at the top for kind of dominance on Clay. What's happened in Miami so far? I think one of the, the biggest developments is Bianca Andrescu. She seems to be back back. Well, I think a lot of us are hesitant to say, to even ask the question, is Bianca back? And what does back mean for Bianca? The last time she had a very good season was 2019. It was pre-pandemic. But that season showed everyone what she's capable of. And she has a creativity on court that is not dissimilar to Alcaraz's. She beat Sakari, like we said, in three sets. And she was pleased as punch with that win. She was. I think as soon as Bianca removed that skirt 
from her Nike outfit. It had unleashed something. Uh, I was talking to, to a mutual on Twitter and we were joking about how it was like the business bun, Serena's business bun. I think it was Bianca's first match in Indian Wells. She was wearing that kind of spandex Nike kit. It's a two-piece with mm-hmm. bicycle, bicycle shorts and there was a skirt over it. She unceremoniously just ripped off the skirt during the match. It must have been bugging her. And uh, she got back to business. And here in Miami, it's cute. Like, it's a really cute look. It's this retro kind of 80s spandex look with long bicycle shorts. Her opening match was against Raducanu. Obviously, it was much hyped. Two recent winners of the U.S. Open, whose games are at a sort of like a question mark period. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine a WTA week in, week out where Rybakina, Sabalenka, Sviantek, Bianca... Naomi, if and when she's back, Ons, Krejcikova, all these top, top players who've shown such an elite level at times over the last few years. I'm sure I'm, I'm sure I'm leaving some players out of that fold as well. Right. And then you have other young players developing. Coco Goff, I still consider her a young player develop, developing. To have them all firing, <laughs> like it would be such a dream to have that come to and then to think that a 25 year old ash barty who dominated the wta tour just retired right and what a different place it is even now just a year later and then we have this nucleus of veterans that seem to be pushing the envelope every week now vk is there or thereabouts we now have patrick vedeva right who is T- competing again on a weekly basis pushing these young ones Teaching a lesson to uh, one of the Lindas, a fellow Czech, beating her 636 love in Miami. Noskova. N- right? Yes. You have here on the agenda Tara Daniel bagels Jimmy Butler's bestie in round two. <laughs> this is so, one of your new dog with a bone issues not in tennis. New. At home, I've been complaining about how all I see is Jimmy Butler everywhere. And kudos to him. He is a tennis fan. When tennis is in Miami, he's there. Tennis players go to heat games. He just seems to be an enthusiast. My only problem was that he's like besties with Alex Verov, and I really don't know why. Mm. Well, that guy, he ate a big, fat, all-dressed sesame, cream cheese-filled bagel. All dressed, well, some Canadian content in there. <laughs> <laughs> six love, six four. Wearing that god-awful sleeveless kit, he pushed his way all the way out of that Miami tournament. I mean, truly, watching that man play tennis is... If he's playing badly, it's fun to watch. Because it's so dramatically <laughs> horrific. But you then just, uh, You cannot be 6'6 and a pusher. You just can't. But the game is just not fun to watch. I just don't get it. No, never I mean, did. Never did. You wanted to give a few flowers to Mr. Daniel here. Yeah, Taro has been having a great run over the past few weeks he actually lost his mom last fall and went through obviously a really difficult period mentally and with his tennis so it's really exciting to see him turn this around he beat uh, number four casper rude in acapulco which was his career best win by ranking uh, he beat Berrettini in indian wells and you may remember he beat Djokovic in 2018 at Indian Wells. It's not technically his best career win because Djokovic was only ranked 10 at the time, but probably his most memorable win. Commentator Christopher Eubanks doing <laughs> double duty in Miami. Yeah, Chris, uh, I we have not really seen him much on Tennis Channel because we don't get Tennis Channel here, but I hear that he is quite good at his job at commentary. He's qualified here in Miami. He's already won two main draw matches, beating number 17 Chorich today from a set and a breakdown. Again, he's close to cracking the top 100 for the first time. His next match will be against either Cam Nori or Barrer. And if he wins that match, it should happen. So if he gets should, to the round yeah. of 16, he should be a top 100 player for the first time. And we are wishing him luck. But sincerely yes not the way we not in the venus way yeah we mentioned earlier that iga announced her withdrawal from miami and bjk cup because of the rib injury she's been playing with at the same time she was 
about to debut a new clothing contract at Miami. Uh, we had to settle for kind of an online drop. Mm-hmm. She, You're not a fan. Well, let's talk about it first. <laughs> okay. She signed with uh, a Swiss brand called On, O-N, which is co-owned by Roger Federer. He bought a bunch of shares in this company a few years ago. And there's a shoe collection that he's been working on called The Roger, all capitals. Iga is going to be wearing a shoe from the Roger collection that has been custom made for her and for her style of play. Simultaneously, it was also announced that Ben Shelton was signed by On. Yes. Uh, now, those those two are obviously at different stages of their career. To me, it's exciting to see new companies come into the fold, especially a company that's going to get uh, a massive player like Iga to wear their stuff. Because as many people have observed, Nike and Adidas are just not doing it, right? And Nike, they've been dropping players left and right. And what we're seeing is just not that exciting, not that creative. The number of players who they make custom kits for is dwindling. And so you just get a a raft of, see a raft, people say that. You get a ton of top 50 players with wearing the same old thing. Mm Mm-hmm. I would say the only top company that's really been doing the business lately is New Balance. Mm. I'm just so bored by everything recently. Yeah. And Asics, like what they had Ego wearing, truly, it was hyenas for me it was personally. No, dull as dishwater. That said, I've said it's exciting to see a new company come in the fold, but the drop was not really that interesting to me it looked it looked like ego was kind of wearing the same stuff no but there's no dish towel in the back of her top (laughs) it was uh, there was no flap she was wearing a cap and she was wearing like a black sleeveless and i guess a skirt combination that just looked like kind of what she normally wears in a different color that was one of my biggest issues with any piece of tennis clothing in my lifetime that flap on the back of Iga's top. Like, I just did not it was, understand it. was it. like a vestigial or- organ. There was no reason for it to be there. Obviously, Iga can and should wear what she likes and what she's comfortable with. I was just hoping for something a little more gripping. Listen, gone are the days of the Serena reveal. Like, you just yeah. have to accept that this is about comfort first and style later. Yeah, like nobody's doing it like that. Some big news. Uh, Ms. Svitolina is going to be back on tour in a couple of weeks, a week and a half maybe. She accepted a wild card to play in Charleston. Let me tell you, that field is going to be lit. Mm -hmm. It usually is, but especially there are not a ton of WTA tournaments on the clay court calendar this year. So you got a lot of top players in Charleston. People are going to be there left over from the North American hardcourt swing. So why not? Why not play the longest-running WTA tournament in history. You've got Sabalenka, Jesse Pagula, Onstjabur, Kasatkina, Bencic, Kudermatova, Vika, Alexandrova, Lynette, Madison Keys, Ostapenko, your bestie, not Trevisan. <laughs> not Trevisan, who got called out by Nao Hibino at the net, saying her uh, team was essentially classless. Paula Badosa, Daniel Collins... Jill Teichman, Anisimova, Boskova. Shelby Rogers is always there. It's our home tournament. Oh, yeah. Sasnovich, Sloan Stevens mentioned Svidalina there as well. One of the Lindas, Fruvitova, <laughs> Layla, Alicia Parks, Kai Kanepi. I could go on. Yeah. This is not an advertisement for Charleston, but hey, if you're on the Eastern Seaboard, why not stop in? You've been a, f- a few times and have really enjoyed it. I've been twice, came very close to going this year, but, you know, life events <laughs> right? <laughs> came in the way of planning that trip. Svitolina had her daughter, Sky back in October. This is a pretty quick return to the tour for her. And uh, they're going to be arranging another Tennis Plays for Peace event uh, to benefit Ukraine at Charleston. Gal Mofis has been back in tennis for a few weeks now. Hasn't been successful yet, but cool to see him back regardless. He lost in Indian Wells and then had to retire from his match in Miami. Mm-hmm. 
we're gonna move on from actual tennis news right now as Coco Goff just lost that second set so <sighs> squared up one apiece with Potapova and we're gonna talk about some etc stuff but before we do Matteo Berrettini loses another early round match mm. he's had a really tough run of luck dating back all the way to last summer really this was to Mackie McDonald today, yes, right? Yes, straight sets. We've been following this ongoing story for a, a long time now about the WTA trying to get better at preventing abuse on tour and establishing some clearer guidelines and a code of conduct. And so much of this was spurred by Pam Shriver's revelation last year about a, an inappropriate relationship with her coach many years ago. And since then, we've, you know, things have actually happened. Right, The WTA announced that they were hiring a director of safeguarding, which they have. Uh, her name is Lindsay Brandon. There were a few stories in tennis, uh, Tennis.com and the New York Times over the past few weeks about what's been going on since. And it is, I mean, it's amazing that when one person, one person who is a true tennis insider comes out with a massive story like this, other people are compelled to speak as well because they feel safer. Lindsay Brandon, uh, the director of safeguarding, went to her first tournament officially at Indian Wells. She met with dozens of players. She met with Pam. And according to the New York Times, she spent most of the first few months of her tenure at the WTA looking into the ongoing complaints and investigations. They, of course, won't say how many open complaints there are, but it uh, does not seem insignificant, which is, of course, disturbing. Her first move has been to require anyone seeking a WTA credential to complete an online safeguarding education program before Roland Garros. And that includes uh, tournament staff, coaches, of course, physios, anyone on the team. According to Brandon, the priorities are managing the investigation of complaints, improving education, and creating a safeguarding code of conduct, which is expected in 2024. For Pam, that's a year too late. Yeah. So <laughs> Pam has been uh, cooperating with the WTA and the ITF, but has uh, the entire time been pushing and hasn't been afraid to show disappointment at certain timelines and uh, how slowly these institutional changes happen. And to be clear, this safeguarding code of conduct would exist alongside the already existing WTA code of conduct. It's a separate thing. Mm. This is meant to, you know, like a lot of policies, establish clear standards of behavior on tour from everybody within the WTA environment and set up procedures about complaints, investigations, review, stuff like that. The, the WTA has a code of ethics currently, and reportedly it discourages intimate relationships between coaches and players. And if the player is under 18, it prohibits them altogether. But Pam has suggested to actually require players to find another coach if that relationship becomes romantic, which would, of course, complicate a lot of current coach-player dynamics. Uh, a few of them are actually married. A few of them met when the player was very young and are now of age. Pam said, quote, I don't mind hurting women's tennis if it means helping women tennis players. That's a... That is a great quote, because in its way, it's a condemnation of those people who historically have decided to protect the institution over its players. And uh, so the idea about this is that this may embarrass women's tennis, this may damage the institution itself, but that may be necessary to protect actual human beings who we've, uh, we've failed for a long, long time. And like Pam said, with her own experience... Living through it in the moment, you don't know that this is an inappropriate relationship while you're going through it. Mm -hmm. And so this is why education becomes such a key part of this whole process. And think about like what the WTA currently does. It's not like it's doing nothing, right? Like there's mental health supports. There are people to reach out to. Uh, there are criminal background checks when someone applies to be a coach. But think about how difficult and how unusual it is for a survivor or a victim to make a criminal complaint when they're abused. So a criminal background check is not always going to accomplish very much. 
Mm-hmm. It's not going to reveal a whole lot. And we know from having gone through the last couple of years, specifically on the ATP tour, that for a disgustingly majority of people, the threshold that you must be able to meet to be able to bring any allegations forward is to file a criminal complaint and have it stick. Right. Otherwise, your allegations, your story, your life experience is without merit. And even if you bring evidence, once people see that evidence, the threshold becomes even higher. Oh, okay, well, you brought evidence, but not the kind that I wanted to see. It becomes a constant exercise in undercutting everything that survivors bring forward with their stories. Mm. Apparently, uh, Pam has been speaking with Dave Haggerty, who's the head of the ITF. And of course, the WTA is not the only organization that needs to, to make changes here. The USTA, the ITF, looks after many, many hundreds of female tennis players in its purview. And she suggested that why doesn't the International Tennis Integrity Agency make safeguarding from abuse one of its pillars? Like, why not put that in their purview? Because they're already looking at doping and betting. This is obviously just as insidious and damaging as those things. One of the things that worries me, especially as tennis seems to be moving toward a more top-heavy approach to tournaments, is the fact that a lot of times these things happen on the very low-level circuits of tennis. Yes. And so when resources and eyes and attention is focused so disproportionately at the top part of the game, I worry that this type of stuff will continue to to happen on the lower levels. Mm-hmm. And so there has to be an allocation of resources to the ground levels, the entry levels of tennis for this to really work, in my opinion. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the kind of the sloppiness of tennis governance and the lack of cooperation be between all of these agencies and institutions inhibits that kind of kind of unified approach to abuse. So again, thank you to Pam for continuing to do the work and make this uh, a sustained effort on, on her part to bring about change. Because as that article <laughs> told us, she's wearing many, many, many hats right now. It described her day as uh, having a coaching session strategy session with Donna Vekic to then have meetings with people about the safeguarding issue to then call a match on Tennis Channel later that night. <laughs> right. She may just be the busiest woman in tennis. Who was it? I mean, oh, it oh was my God. Justin Kimmel's Who was famously, infos- <laughs> yes, infamously the- described as the, the busiest man in tennis. Mm-hmm. Barf. Uh, I wanted to move on to a few listener questions. We took questions a few weeks ago because we knew we were going to be away. And a few of them are topical for things that I actually wanted to talk about this week. So we may end up still doing a mailbag episode at some point, but for now it seems like we'll be filling in In, a couple segments. and bobs. Yeah. This question is from KvittyCat53. She asks or says, The crowds for WTA events are often quite sparse in some countries. What should the WTA be doing to raise the profile of the women's game? A tough one when women's sport is always firmly behind men's, and I think the onus is on the owners of the tournament. I've been to events here in the UK, and it is all LTA branding, not a WTA cap or merch anywhere. Any ideas? And this is a tough one because, uh, you know, we're not marketers, we're not promoters. Uh, <laughs> we have ideas, but I don't know if they would be successful. And as much uh, as we think we know how tennis is run... We probably know 10% of it. Right. This, to me, was a pathway to a story written by Peter Bodo for Tennis.com this week about the uh, deal between WTA and the CVC Equity Partners Group, which includes a, a huge influx of cash into the WTA and the establishment of this new organization called WTA Ventures, which will be separate from the tour, but is going to be aimed at finding new revenue streams and increasing like commercialization of the players images and stuff like that bodo likened this wta ventures to atp media which is a separate entity from the atp Mm -hmm. and its sole purpose is to i think it was described as to wake up every morning and sell the atp yep 
brainstorm new ways to sell this tour to people to generate revenue. But the the idea here and how it relates to Kviti Kat's question is that the WTA has never had this separate organization. So the tour is caught up in literally just running the operations of the tour and everything that comes with that. And so they've never had, or they don't currently have this arm that is only devoted to finding revenue, to being creative, to licensing players' images, to figure out ways to better promote the sport in smaller countries, to get huge support for their 250 and 500 tournaments, you know, stuff like that. So CVC feels, or seems to feel, that they can do what the ATP is doing and that the WTA, because of their lack of resources, is just leaving money on the table. Like, they think the interest is there, but they've just never had the time and the resources to invest. You're constantly playing whack-a-mole. You know, like hungry, hungry hippo to put out fires here or there to just survive. And a lot of those issues were exacerbated during the pandemic Mm -hmm. with the Peng Shui situation, with uh, not having revenue coming from Chinese events, having a, a depressed tour schedule, trying to have players' salary prize money maintained at a certain level at a somewhat acceptable level Mm -hmm. you know and so maybe this wta ventures the big takeaway is that it'll allow the wta to expand its wings into areas and do things it wasn't previously able to do because so many of these tournaments are owned uh, by the lta some of the American tournaments are owned by the USTA, a lot of them by Privately private companies, by billionaires. Oracle or IMG or BNP Paribas. And they're the ones promoting, but there are a lot of hands in the pot, right? There are sponsors who want their name out there. The owners need to make money. Uh, branding the WTA itself as something marketable and, and that has a lot of cachet, I think, is super important. And the WTA has really tried to invest in their story. Like their history is pretty singular in the history of sport. And we've seen that this year and in the last couple of years with uh, the WTA telling the story of the original line and how the tours found it. Yeah, I mean, even look at this isn't really the WTA, but look at the beautiful artwork that the US Open unveiled this week for their poster. That retro picture of Billie Jean King. You know, this sort of a like art deco feel. That's going to sell so much stinking money at the US Open yeah. this year. So if the WTA actually had time and uh, kind of the like the marketing minds who got that and could spend the resources, I think, you know, the WTA could again become a brand with a lot of recognition. I mean, we know from being tennis fans and seeing all y'all's purchasing habits on the Internet. That if you come up with some cool merch, that'll sell like hotcakes. Oh, yeah. And like, it doesn't all have to be retro. Like, that's the stuff I'm I'm interested in. But you Like, know, you have all these moments week to week where, okay, fine, you don't want to lean into the most salacious stuff. You might want to stay away from some of the Ostapenko quotes. But there, there are quite a few things that happen on a week to week basis that, just from a text perspective, get a nice cute little graphic artist in there and sell some shirts you know yeah what i thought was interesting about this uh bodo story from tennis.com was that part of the idea behind the cbc deal is to generate revenue and commercialization based on the concept of equal prize money which i thought was fascinating so the actual social capital that comes with showing that women are being paid as much as men the idea is that the product itself will be valued more highly and therefore will be able to negotiate better broadcasting deals, sponsorships, all of these things. Bodo also had something to say this week about the lack of due diligence on the part of tennis reporters in handling the Russian invasion of Ukraine and how that's affected and continues to affect tennis players on a week-to-week basis. Saying that we can't even get to a point where we ask the first basic question to players of what they think of the war. Yeah, uh, I'm always interested in these types of tweets from reporters because, you know, we've, in our very small way, we've been part of a press corps at certain tournaments. You get credentialed by the tournament. 
there are sort of social rules, unwritten rules that you follow, the press conference scenario, it's it's hard, right? Like it's hard to ask tough questions and you depend so much on access to these players. And when you're not covering the tour on a week-to-week basis, it's difficult to build that momentum to A, follow stories, and B, for most of us, as part-time, very part-time, quote-unquote, reporters, have the confidence. I know that sounds stupid and silly, but to have the confidence to ask these questions. Right. So to to be a real reporter, you do have to be very thick-skinned and very okay with creating uncomfortable situations. That's literally the job. And it's also why I never really wanted to do the job like I thought I did, but I didn't end up going into that line of work permanently. We both started as journalism majors. Fun fact, we started the same year at the same college in the United States in the same program, and we both lasted a year in journalism. But we never had any classes together, which still surprises me. Mm -hmm. Very weird. Anyway, we've said before that the, the lack of investment in actual like in newspapers and publications sending reporters out to tournaments on their expense has obviously hurt journalism and tennis but over the past few years i have i've just observed when i'm trying to read up for this podcast do my research see what kind of reporting is out there it's like where is the reporting you know i find i'm going to the same journalists over and over and they happen to be the one who have the backing of a major institution behind them because good reporting costs money. They happen to be the ones. You made it sound like you're talking about one person in particular. So many papers are obviously suffering, and I knew that. I experienced that firsthand. But there is just like a, a disappointing scarcity in genuine reporting in this sport. And when someone actually does report stuff, they're going to have to deal with just pure hatred on Twitter for it. Mm-hmm. There are way too many barriers to the the tennis reporting process for me. Yeah, like if you don't have a permanent job. Right? If you don't have a permanent job, you're relying on tournaments credentialing you. You often need to have a connection, somebody to speak up on your behalf. New media has often struggled to get access we've there have been tournaments that we haven't been able to get credentialed at that we've been denied from the well, ones that some, we some without even applying <laughs> i'm not getting into it but that's always interesting it's oh like, gotcha it's like don't come here <laughs> that, no it was polite but it was so weird it's like i didn't ask <laughs> it's like okay you can come just not in the press room but you can walk around the grounds for a bit <laughs> you have to pay for your tickets <laughs> anyway um no, I don't think we would have had to. Oh, okay. Interesting. Anyway. But still, we weren't going. Yeah, we like, to play. I'm going to lug a laptop around a, a tournament. Anyway, um, you distracted me from my train of thought there. No, that was just, it was funny to me when that happened. And the ones that we have been to, it's been largely due to connections as well. Because you need a, a foot in the door somewhere. And even then, when you do get that foot in the door, you are so walking on eggshells, trying to not A, oh, yeah. screw it up, B, give a good account of yourselves. It's just not, I, th- I just want to push back at the idea that it's an easy thing for reporters, would-be reporters in tennis to do. Uh, yes. I think all that said, I don't think the industry is doing a great job. No. And so what I assume Bodo is talking about here is the folks who do it regularly, who have a more solid footing mm-hmm. in the industry. I've seen in those settings where there is an uncomfortable amount of bootlicking from some of those people in those press conferences. Yes. Uh, Sports journalism in general uh, can be very provincial. It can be full of journalists who are also fans, who also like the players and want to be friends with the players. And I'm not saying that's everybody, but that happens in basketball, of course. Like, it's just an intimate way of covering something because you may be traveling with the team. You may even have access to the locker room in other sports, mm-hmm. not in tennis. But tennis is so much smaller than some of these major sports that it's a, like, it's, you don't want to alienate these players that you're going to see every single week, right? But that's part of the job. Like, you're not PR 
you're not promoting the tournament as much as the tournament way wants you to promote it. That's quite literally not your job there. Hashtag tennis paradise. Exactly. Uh, so Indian Wells may have decided that is your job there. But I'm a strong proponent of journalists should cover things they don't like. If you are, let's say you're a tennis podcaster, not me, who doesn't like tennis, that would be very interesting to me because you could cover it from a, a bit of a more impartial perspective. Okay, yeah. And then there is this other would-be barrier with social media because you go into the press room, you do that bit of work. Say you don't have a news outlet behind you. Where are you disseminating your work? Yeah, It's on social media. And we know <laughs> that the vast majority of sport fandom sees tennis journalism as agenda-driven. Right. What of, I mean, fans are interpreting news and reporting based on their own personal biases and then saying that reporters are haters and liars and sensationalists. And in, in some cases, that's true. Uh, but it's a... Yeah, it's... It's a, it's a complicated vortex. Yeah, I... I uh, am amazed that people want to get into the industry because it is so, I, I can tell you, if you haven't been in it, it is so absolutely punishing from all aspects. Uh, and a lot of times you don't even have your company on your side because mm -hmm. you're two inches away from a layoff. And everybody has an idea, an opinion on what you should be doing, right? Mm -hmm. Including us. Right? Yes. And I don't know what the answer is to make this a better situation because i don't think we can count on going back to the glory years of no, the new york right. times sending reporters plural washington post all these traditional news houses covering sport the way it used to be covered in this digital age mm -hmm. that's can, can you imagine the miami herald the san francisco chronicle the atlanta journal constitution sending tennis reporters around the world to cover tournaments like that does not happen the majority of them have side gigs. Yeah. <laughs> In our case, we, we have full-time gigs, and this is our side <laughs> right. gig. And this, so you pick a few spots out of the calendar year where schedules align, and you can go do do something different for a while, right? Yeah. But you, you spend your own money. Right. I guess what I'm saying is, I, the one thing I can point to is having some kind of universal credentialing system that accounts more for new media, that is keen on bringing, bringing diverse or more diverse voices to the press room and finding a balance between player comfort in those situations and covering issues. Mm -hmm. The pandemic was actually great for that because it created this uh, kind of Wild West version of the press where it was a lot easier to get invited to press conferences virtually and at the time especially in 2020 so many things were happening politically and culturally that players were being uh, compelled to answer to those things mm -hmm. um, the protests in the summer of 2020 and COVID, of course but the tournaments don't want to do that anymore like they don't want to do the virtual press conferences but it did democratize it a little bit right but then now we're seeing the lifers complain that we have not returned to pre-pandemic access yeah so that's an interesting thing right like the tournaments took that opportunity to limit reporters access to players and were able to sort of cloak it in well you know we're sort of just getting back to normal or there are budget concerns or in some cases they don't make any excuses at all you have younger players who by and large are very keen to be part of the process. They've never done it before. Like, wow, people are interested in what we have to say. Yeah. You have this older generation of players who feel, by and large, jaded by the process, hard done by the process, feel like their words have been taken out of context so much. And oftentimes, it's not by the person asking the question. It's that question being asked, being published in written form somewhere, online or in a paper, and then it being taken out of context by some other third party for clickbait. Yeah, or some copy editor writes a headline that's misleading. 
Right. And then so the players, <laughs> they're fed up with it. Yeah. Their agents don't want to expose them to this. Why in this day and age where you are a stone's throw away from catching a case on social media, would you want to give your player more exposure to that? Yeah. Right. So I get that part of it. But there has to be some neutral, objective third party who is running this whole show, to my mind. And I don't know how you get there. I don't see it as an easy fix. I see from the reporter perspective to the player perspective, everybody trying to protect whatever little they have in this process. Yeah. So we could obviously go on about this forever, but we won't. You know, I actually had a few other questions here that I would like to save and give a little more thought to for the next episode. There was a question about Scream 6, which came out a few weeks ago, which I did see right before we went on vacation. I'll talk about that next time. I did really enjoy it. I like this new cast, like this new universe. It's kind of the second uh, the second coming of Scream. With just talk about it, because you're, you're talking about it now. Just, just with Melissa Barrera, with, um, what's her name, Wednesday. Jenna Ortega, who's going to become a massive superstar like any second. Josh Segarra, do you remember him? Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. Love him. And Scream is like meta on meta on meta. When it first came out, it was this sort of satire about the the conventions of horror films, but it was also scary. And it was very influential as far as teen comedy, teen horror, Kevin Williamson. It was basically the entree to Dawson's Creek teenagers played by 25 year olds who speak at a very high level you know the dialogue is very academic uses a lot of big words very meta uh it's like the tarantino sort of pastiche commentary on pop culture and horror films and all that stuff i scream was so gripping to me as a kid i think i first saw it when i was like 12 and i was probably too young but I watched it like 10 times right after that. That question was submitted by Ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not going to rank the Scream movies, which he asked, uh, but I will say I enjoyed the new ones, but the like the formula can definitely get old because of the new ones like Scream 5 and 6. They were kind of replicating Scream 1 and 2. But yeah, it was fun. One more question before we go mm-hmm. from Willa Catheter. Do either of you agree with the assertion that Pedro Pascal is daddy? Um, yes, both. Does anyone <laughs> disagree with that? This man has just taken over the internet. I watched an interview with him on Graham Norton recently. I watched it last night, actually. It was like 14 minutes. And to his right is Helen Mirren. Mm. And to his left is... Angela Bassett did the thing. Oh, Graham gets all the best guests. Right? It's such a great sit-down interview format because, fine, each person gets their little shine, but it's not, oh, you bring out one, you bring out the next. They're just there and they're just chatting. It's not like a four-minute, I'm promoting my movie, and then you go. They tell stories. The three of them together was awesome. Hmm. Pedro, I first knew him as, uh, what was his name? Oberyn Martell on Game of Thrones, Mm -hmm. who was like the pansexual... Lothario smoke show dream smoke show uh, just like in the last of us spoilers are coming so please beware uh just like the last of us game of thrones loved to kill its darlings right introduce a character everybody liked and then just what does it have to do with pedro pascal oh because i had hoped that he would last longer in game of thrones he's still he alive oh I thought, in, I thought, in game oh, of thrones okay. Okay, gotcha. I was like, he's still alive in The Last of Us. Oh, yeah, but Pedro is such... He's such a dream. His interviews are charming. He's besties with Sarah Paulson. I think part of why the queer community has been so obsessed with him for such a long time is because he's always been so friendly to us and And, speaking up for us. Yeah, I actually don't really know what his persuasion is. And that's part of it, too, because... People imagine that he is one of us as well. (laughs) But it could also be the fact that he has an out trans sister as well. Mm -hmm. So yes, Pedro Pascal is daddy. That's undisputed at this point. He is the perfect age to be daddy as well. at some point, he'll be abuelito. (laughs) We eagerly await. 
Uh, that brings us to the end of episode 296. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James at, um, oh, Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. The Body Serve, you can find us everything we do through our link tree, which is linktree.com slash the Body Serve. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Thank you very much. 